Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Moving through the book of Titus the next couple of several weeks. And this morning we come to a passage that talks about the qualifications of a leader, the qualifications of an elder. What type of a person are you supposed to be if you're going to be a leader in the church? Today there's a lot being written on the subject of church leadership. A lot being written that has some real interesting impact on how congregations function and how they serve in their communities. Ron Enroth has written a book called Churches That Abuse. And in that book, he talks about abusive churches that have uh, uh, a stranglehold on people in their congregation. And he marked eight qualities of a cultic church calling itself Christian that are in essence abusive to the people in the congregation. He says abusive churches, number one, have a control-oriented style of leadership. Leaders are dominating and in control. Number two, the leaders of such churches often use manipulation to gain complete submission from their members. Three, there's a rigid legalistic lifestyle involving numerous requirements and minute details for daily life. Number four, these abusive churches tend to change their names often, especially when they are exposed by the media. Number five, abusive churches denounce other churches. It's common because they see themselves as superior to all other churches. And number six, they have a persecution complex and view themselves as being persecuted by the world, the media, and other Christian churches. Number seven, abusive churches specifically target young adults between the ages of 18 and 25. And uh, number eight, abusive churches have great difficulty uh, when members decide to leave or get out of the church. The process is often marked by social or psychological or emotional pain. The reason I tell you that is abusive churches are led by abusive people. And leadership in a church pretty much has a, uh, an influence on the rest of the congregation, and the rest of the congregation pretty much responds to the type of leadership, those that stand in the position of authority and responsibility before God. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary for many years ago, and he told the story of a missionary who became lost in the African jungle. He couldn't find any landmarks, and all the trails that he was familiar with had vanished. And uh, as he was walking, he stumbled across a, a small hut and asked the native living there if he would help him get out. The native agreed, rose to his feet, and walked directly into the bush. The missionary followed him. More than an hour, they hacked their way through vines and a dense wall of grass, and the missionary became worried because nothing ever, uh, uh, trails didn't appear and no clearing appeared. And he said to the native, are you sure this is the way out? I don't see any path. And the African smiled and said over his shoulder, Buana, in this place there is no path. I am the path. Leaders in the church are the path. Leaders in the church are examples. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And leadership in the congregation provides examples, models for other believers to follow. The Bible has a lot to say about leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it describes the office of the deacon, describes the office of the elder. Elders are the God-ordained leaders in the church functioning under the headship of Jesus Christ. And as the elder performs his duty of explaining God's word to the people and then living it out in his own personal experience, his life becomes the path that others can follow, those who are interested in pursuing a holy life. So the elder becomes the trail that others in the congregation follow, just like Paul who said, in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 9. And again he said to the Corinthians and the Philippians, be imitators of me. And elsewhere he said, follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul explains here in this passage to Timothy how to select leaders, how to select leaders that the people in the congregation can follow as they follow Christ. And I believe that the qualities that are given here are too often overlooked in many churches. I believe the qualities that are given here are given for a reason, and they are vital for the church in its leadership ministry today. So this morning, I want us to look at this God-ordained perspective that the church today would do well to rediscover. In Titus, then, chapter 1, verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, the church is given the God-given qualities of a man who is competent to be a leader in the congregation. Here are the qualities that God gives in Scripture to help congregations select men who are competent to be leaders, competent to, to provide a path for others to follow in their pursuit of Jesus Christ. Follow along as I read. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So those are the qualities that Paul gave to Titus, having left Titus in Crete to set in order and to appoint elders in the church. So looking at this passage of Scripture, first of all, in verse 5, you will notice that Paul instructed Titus to select leaders in the church. That's his assignment in the island of Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and Crete is a, was a, 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 a community of people that was, number one, famous for its wine. Famous for its wine. And the people on the island of Crete had a reputation for drunkenness. Number two, it was a factious people. They were the kinds of people who couldn't get along with each other. And number three, they were fabricators. They were liars. You will notice chapter 1, verse 12, Paul, in referencing one of the people of Crete, says, 
One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Paul didn't leave Titus at a very easy spot to minister. It was very difficult. People on the island of Crete were famous, was known as a place famous for its wine, factious people, fabricators, and number four, false teachers. You look at verses 10 through 16, as we will next week, there was ongoing conflict in the congregations. Anytime you have people, you always have conflict, you always have difficulty, and so Titus was to carefully select those men who would be left in charge of the churches to lead and direct the congregation. His responsibility then in verse 5 was basically two things. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. That was the first thing. I want you to set in order. I want you to straighten the churches out in certain areas. Now, we're not sure what he meant by that statement, to be honest with you. He doesn't say specifically in verse 5 what straightening out involved, but we take from that he was probably referring to the selection of elders, but... uh, Then he says, number two, I want you to ordain elders. So it causes us to think, well, maybe what he was talking about is the balance of the rest of the letter. That uh, setting in order what remains had to do with, um, well, it had to do with um, working with people, resolving people problems. The expression setting in order was a medical term and it was used of setting a broken bone. It was used of straightening a crooked limb. So setting in order has to do with uh, perhaps verses 10 through 16, ministering to false teachers. May have something to do with uh, chapter 2 verse 1, but as for you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine And he speaks to the older men, verse 2, the older women, verse 3, and and so on and so forth. Maybe it could be that setting in order was to talk about spiritual Christian life or what Paul calls here good deeds. You will notice the word good deeds is repeated over and over in this book. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Worthless for any good deed. Chapter 2, verse 3, teaching what is good. Verse 7, be an example of good deeds. Notice verse 14, zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1, for every good deed. Verse 8, in good deeds, engage in good deeds. And then verse 14, engage in good deeds once again. Good deeds seems to have been a theme in the book. And uh, it may have been included in this idea of set in order. Teach the folks how to live good deeds in an ungodly environment may have been what Paul had in mind with that expression. The second thing he's told to do, in addition to setting in order, he was also told to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, Paul told Timothy to do the same thing, and you can read about it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. In fact, you find qualities of an elder there, and they're very similar to the ones here. Very similar. It is apparent that Paul had given Titus, and this 
passage specific instruction as to what he wanted them to do because the last phrase in the translation says, as I directed you, I want you to appoint elders as I instructed you to do. Now when you talk about the word elder in a church, let's be sure that we know what we're talking about. Elders are not necessarily old men. Elders is a term that became a reference to an office in the church, and it's probably based upon the Old Testament custom of elders in the synagogue. But elder, presbyteros in the Greek, refers to the position in the church. The emphasis is upon his authority, a term that is used interchangeably with elder is the word overseer. The overseer, Greek word episkopos, can also be understood as the bishop, speaks of the function. They were superintendents. The elders were guardians. They were people responsible for the spiritual welfare of the congregation. And the third word is pastor. Poimen in the Greek also speaks of function. These leaders are managers. They provide food, water, and protection. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In that psalm, the Lord provides for food and water and protection for the sheep. And that, in essence, is what the poimen, what the pastor, is designed to do. Now, number one tells us that uh, elders were always men. And I know that in some churches, elders include ladies, include women. But I have to tell you, from a biblical perspective, if you're going to do it the way the Bible says, elders are always men, pastors are always men, and there's no exceptions. Number three, elders are brought to the attention by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, it would be nice today if we had a Titus who could come to our church and appoint elders. It would be nice if there was some apostolic person who could make those selections. But we don't have a person like that. And the Scripture seems to indicate that even though, even though we don't, the Holy Spirit brings those men to the surface and makes it obvious who they are and how they are to function in the congregation. So they are brought to the attention in the church by the Holy Spirit. Number four, they always appear in multiples. They always appear in multiples. It's not one elder. You will notice in verse 5 that Titus was to appoint elders, plural, in every city. Not one elder in, in, the, in the city, but uh, there is a multiplicity in the selection of elders. The function of the elder is to teach and rule. According to 1 Timothy 5.17, elders who rule well, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So elders are to teach and they are to lead, they're to rule. Secondly, they are to guard the people and the truth from heresy. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, Be on guard for yourselves and for the, all the flock. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So elders are to protect, they are to guard the flock, they are to guard and protect the truth in the church. And next, we, the Bible tells us that the overseer is to oversee the church like a shepherd does his flock, as we've already mentioned. First um, Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, ec uh, exercising oversight according to the will of God. And then shepherds or overseers, 
elders are to be an example. Again, to the, to the uh, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but pro proving to be examples to the, to the flock. Again, the elders are to show the path, uh, a path of obedience to Jesus Christ. They are to be examples to the flock. And the Bible also says they are to equip the believers to effectively serve. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Elders don't do all the work of service, but they equip the saints to do the work of service. Now, the Bible says that the position of elder in the church is something that uh, is good if a man desires to do it. It's good if a man has a heart to do it. But you're not to make an, a man an elder against his will. I've learned that from personal experience in, in the past. Uh, being an elder should, uh, uh, means that he should not come to that pos position convinced that he needs to do it by somebody outside of himself. It's something that originates from within himself. Now, the Bible doesn't say that being the elder is the most important position in the church. The Bible doesn't say it's the most honorable position in the church. Paul told Timothy, if a man desires the office of the elder, it is a fine work he desires to do, a fine work, a good work, a useful work in the congregation. So, verse 5 for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, that you would solve the problems that remain in the event that I had to leave. I'm leaving you in charge, Titus, to set in order what remains and, number two, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now from, from there, Paul, is in, Paul instructed Titus to select several qualified men to lead in the churches. That's what we find in verses 6, 7, eight and nine as we move through these you may find the outline in the program the bulletin that you received helpful as we move through these descriptive phrases and I want to say at the outset that these qualities these terms these descriptions of the man who serves in the position of elder <clears throat> is something that each of us ought to aspire to if these are qualities that God considers important in the position of leadership, then it's something that all of us ought to seek. Gene Getz, in his book, The Measure of a Man, calls these expressions the measure of a man. I would expand it, and in the places that you can expand it and apply it, I would say it's the measure of a woman. And you will notice that these terms have to do with men getting along with men. On the elder board, men deal with emotional issues that dramatically impact the congregation. You can't have men on the board who don't get along with other people. You can't have people on the board who are always fighting and, uh, and in, the, in the midst of conflict. You have to have people who get along with each other. And that rises to the surface. Now you will notice the first qualification in verse um, 6 is the word above reproach in my translation. It may be translated, he must be blameless. Namely, if any man is above reproach, if any man is blameless, and the literal idea means that his life gives no handle. There is nothing in his life that would cause someone to pull him down. 
The idea is his life is without indictment or accusation. By that we mean the, that people who know him cannot bring specific character charges against him of violating God's word. Now in my mind, I see Titus going into one of these small home churches and saying, okay, uh, Paul wants me to appoint elders. I want everyone in the congregation who is a man uh, to raise your hand. So the men raise their hand. Now I want everybody in the congregation who is above reproach. I want every man in the church who is blameless to stand up. I can't imagine one man would stand up. And as a part of me, every time I look at these terms, I say to myself, who's blameless but Jesus? And clearly that's, that's the concept here. The idea is we're looking for a person who has a good reputation. I see uh, Timothy is an example. The Bible says in Acts 16 verses 1 and 2 that Paul took him along. Paul took Timothy along because Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He was well spoken of. He had a good reputation. He wasn't perfect. And there were flaws in his character that he was engaged in working on in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. What you see here is the word blameless, or the word above reproach, is an overarching umbrella description of the elder in the church. It's kind of like a summary statement. This is the way he ought to be, generally speaking. And then he, he seems to infer that I'm going to go into specifics to help you understand what I mean by blameless, what I mean by above reproach. So the leaders in the church, the leaders in the congregation, would not be the kinds of guys that we would necessarily choose in our culture. Oftentimes, churches are looking for men with the most influence in the community. They're looking for men with lots of money. They're looking for men who must, uh, uh, men who have, uh, um, who have been to Bible school or who have been to seminary. Men who are smart businessmen. These are the guys that we want in the position to, to lead our church. But those are not the qualities that are given here. The men that are selected here are men who have strong character, many times strong opinions. And because they're dealing with emotional issues and because they're dealing with difficult subjects, they have to be men who can process the issues and come to a conclusion that they believe as a group that is directed by the Holy Spirit under the headship of Jesus Christ. They must be men who are who are sensitive to the will of God in their own personal lives, in their family lives. Because as Paul says to Timothy, if they can't manage their own household, how can they manage the church of God? So the home becomes the proving ground, as we're going to see, that demonstrates men who hear from God in their home and minister from that perspective are men you look at for consideration to be an elder in the church. So spiritually, they're not perfect guys. Spiritually, they're, they're not Jesus Christ. But we do see here that they're guys that have got to have their stuff together, spiritually speaking. 
So when Scripture uses the expression above reproach or blameless, it includes the following ideas. Notice his family qualifications in verse 6. There are four of them. The husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. His family qualifications, number one, is the husband of one wife. The literal idea there is he is a one-woman man. That's the literal translation from the Greek. He has eyes only for his wife. He is unquestionably loyal and faithful to her. Now, there have been extensive debates over what this expression means and how it applies. Does it mean that the elder cannot be a widower? Does it mean that an elder cannot be single? Does it mean that an elder cannot be divorced? In our own fellowship, we've, we've argued long and uh, over years as to whether or not a, a divorced man could be an elder. And in our congregation, we've concluded, and the, we believe it's consistent with Scripture, that a one-woman man is a man who has eyes for his wife and her alone. Secondly, he must have children who believe. You, you won't find that expression in the King James translation, but the idea here is children living in the home and are old enough to understand have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, by the way, children in the home. That means that once children grow up and are on their own, then the elder is no longer responsible for them. They are responsible for themselves at that point. It goes on to say that children are not accused of dissipation. In your translation, it may be debauchery or it may be translated wild. It means that the children are not wild and disorderly refers to a child who has been taught manners and respect and that leaves room for kids to grow up, for kids to be kids. But does the father, the head of the home, is he in, in uh, control of his children? When he's having conversation with other men, is he aware of what his kids are doing? A lot of times a man becomes so consumed with conversation with other people it completely is oblivious to his children. And in those cases, his children discredit him. Doesn't mean the kids are perfect. Again, the focus is on the man, ultimately not the kids. The focus is on the leader, the elder. So not accused of dissipation and not accused of rebellion. Your translation may say insubordination or disobedient. It means that the children are not insubordinate referring to a child who has been gracious who has been taught to graciously yield to God-given authority that begins in the home and it is the re, it is the response of a child to his father and mother's training now I'll just say here in passing that we've had elders in our church take time off from the board when they have sensed that their children need attention We've had guys take uh, leaves of absences in order to give their child special love, direction, and in some case, discipline. And we respect that. Uh, we had one elder who I dearly loved, but every time his teenager would get into trouble, he would bring his resignation to me. And I would say, you know what? Your kids are kids. Um, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm in 
overwhelmed with the fact that you are in touch with your kids and you are ministering to your kids, you are helping your kids, but kids are not perfect. And sometimes they get out of line, but the question is, what does the dad do when they get out of line? What does the elder do? And I believe that the father who is detached is a person who is not qualified to lead his family, not qualified to lead the church. Now, in verse 7, you'll come, we come to his personal qualifications. And they're, they're expressed in a negative way in verse 7 and a positive way in verse 8. Verse 7 says, The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. You will notice the word elder is used in verse 6, and now it is switched to overseer in verse 7. Again, elder and overseer, we're talking about the same person. You will notice that he is called the steward of God. And the steward in those days was a common term referring to a man who managed another person's household. A steward was a person who was in charge of the family uh, when the man and, and the woman were away. And here it refers to the man entrusted to managing God's family. The steward of God is the one who does God's work. You will notice in verse 7, he is not self-willed. Your translation may say arrogant or overbearing. Literally, it means he's not self-pleasing. He's not obstinate in one's own opinion. He, he is not a person of his own authority. He's willing to be considerate of the beliefs and feelings of other people. You can't have an obstinate man on the board. You can understand what would happen if you had somebody who, who obstinately saw only his own opinion and would not consider the input of other men on the board. He cannot be self-willed. He cannot be quick-tempered. The word quick-tempered in verse 7 re, uh, communicates the idea of inclined to anger. He's a man with a short fuse. He's a walking time bomb waiting to explode, as somebody put it. And the meaning here is he is capable of dealing with life's injustices in a controlled, Christ-like manner. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 reminds us that it is possible to be angry and not sin. But usually people who get angry are angry over their rights being violated by somebody. And when that's the case, it is difficult to function on a board of elders when you have some person who is, who's got that weakness. Next, you'll notice that he's not addicted to wine. As I mentioned, wine was a problem in, in Crete. They had excellent wine, and everybody came from all over the world to, uh, to get their wine. So there were drunkards in Crete. And, it, and this expression says you can't have a drunkard on the board, not given to drunkenness. The idea here is he does not linger long over alcohol. That's what the expression literally means. He's not a person who becomes intoxicated. He's not a heavy drinker. So a blameless man is a man who is above reproach, is a man who has control of alcohol. Alcohol does not control him. Second, or the next, you find in verse 7, he is not pugnacious. Pugnacious means, uh, or may be translated, not violent. Literally, the word means ready with a blow. You can understand, you can't have a, a man who's a striker, who's a fighter on your board. 
It means he does not resort to physical violence when annoyed. And I would say, I would hasten to say, and does not resort to verbal violence when he's annoyed. He is not pugnacious. Next one, he is not fond of sordid gain, verse 7. The last one in verse 7. It means, literally, he doesn't make money in a dishonorable way. He does not have greed for gain. He does not sacrifice his integrity in the way he makes a living. You will notice in verse 11 that false teachers do, but the elder in the church does not. So we move from the negative qualities to the positive qualities in verse 8. And notice, first of all, that he is hospitable. Literally, it means he loves strangers. He loves people. And he uses his home to entertain people he knows as well as people he doesn't know. This was significant in this time because they didn't, have, they didn't have motels. They didn't have hotels like we have today. And to stay in some inns meant that you were, you were exposed to disgrace and sometimes inhumanity. And so Christians opened their homes when believers were traveling through the community and uh, sometimes non-believers, and they would have them into their home to provide a safe place for them to, to spend the night. So he's hospitable, verse 8. Secondly, he loving what is good. It means that he's got good moral reputation. He likes doing the right thing even when it's difficult. Verse 8, he's sensible. It may be translated in your uh, translation self-controlled or sober-minded. The literal term means he is of sound mind. He's sane. He's not impulsive. In other words, he solves problems and pursues opportunities in a reasonable, logical manner. He's not swayed by emotion back and forth, up and down. He's just. Your translation may say upright. The word literally means righteous. It means he follows a pattern of obedience to the will of God. Next, he's devout. Basic idea means he is holy, he's pleasing to God, meaning that he chooses godly options in an ungodly world. And the last one in verse 8, he is self-controlled, or your translation may say disciplined. means that he holds his appetites under control. He remains in control of himself and temptation. Self-control is one of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, 22, and 23. Therefore, self-control is the self-life under control by the Holy Spirit and directed by the Word of God. Now, why is this important? And this brings us to verse 9. Holding fast the faithful Word, which, in the, which is in accordance with sound teaching. The last qualification is holding fast the faithful or trustworthy word. And the reason is that he, uh, and the meaning is, he holds strongly to the truth of the Scripture in order to exhort and refute when necessary. An elder needs to be able to go to chapter and verse when confronted by a false teacher or confronted by a question. He is able to hold fast to the faithful, trustworthy word, and the reason is so, found right here in verse 9, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The elder is a protector. 
He's a protector of the truth, and he's a protector of the false teach against the false teacher. The word exhort there means to come alongside. He is willing to come alongside to urge. He's willing to come alongside to admonish, and if necessary, to refute. And the word refute means to prove with clear, unquestionable evidence. So that when he's done refuting, the person who's heard what he has to say, understands what he has to say, he may choose to accept what he has to say, or he may reject what he has to say, but he does understand it. And that's the nature of an elder. He needs to be able to refute those who contradict. That means he he must be able to bring them to understanding. So let me wrap it up with this. The elder must be above reproach. The elder must be blameless. That's the umbrella term. And when we say above reproach, we are talking about the fact that he must be the husband of one wife, having his children who believe, children who are not accused, yes, children who are not accused of dissipation and rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And he must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now next week, we'll get to verses 10 through 16. And that's where verse 9 is brought into application. A very, very important passage. An elder is to know the word in order to protect the flock and to defend the truth. We talked about uh, the fact that uh, the elder then, to be blameless or above reproach, must have his home in order, number one. He must have his home in order. Doesn't mean his kids are perfect. Doesn't mean his relationship with his wife is perfect. But it's above reproach. In other words, it's not a man that uh, minimizes and uh, criticizes his wife. He respects her. He has eyes only for her. Number two, his personal life must serve as a path for others to follow. Titus says this is what he's not to do and this is what he is to do in the, per, in the effort to help us understand what it means to be blameless. His personal life must serve as a path for others to follow. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul said. And number three, he must be doctrinally sound. He's got to have had time in the Word in order to know what the Word says about a variety of different topics so that when he's asked a question about the Bible, he can... He can do more than say, well, it seems to me, or I feel, he needs to be able to take a person to chapter and verse. These values are the measuring rod for all of us in the church. I think God has placed these values as uh, important and critical to the elder. I believe it's important to every man, and we're applicable to every woman. In a sense, it's a summary of how we ought to think and how we ought to live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the information that you give us about leadership in the church, information that is often ignored or given lip service to. 
Lord, I thank you for these descriptive terms that are very clear. And I thank you, Lord, for the elders of our church, men who are certainly not perfect, but men who aspire to be godly in their personal lives, in their public life, and in ministry in the church, men who are sensitive to the Spirit of God in their own lives and sensitive to the Spirit of God as they lead their families, and men who are sensitive to the Spirit of God as they direct the church. I thank you for each one of them. I thank you for the men who have uh, been a part of our ministry in the past and upon whose shoulders, whose faithful shoulders, we stand today as, as elders in the church. I thank you for their testimony and their persistence and their passion for you. And I pray that you would give our men wisdom as we work through difficult issues that deal issues that deal with people and problems sometimes sometimes as we deal with opportunities that are placed before us your word says if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of God and Lord as we ask we pray that you would continue to direct we thank you for the congregation who so graciously follows the leadership of the board we are grateful for each one of them and grateful for what you're doing in their lives as you continue to conform them to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up more elders among us as they serve and as they minister in small groups, as they demonstrate the heart of a shepherd, as they demonstrate love for God and love for people, that we might be able to add additional people to the board. But Lord, this is your church. And we yield to your leadership and your authority. We want to be sensitive to your spirit as you raise up men among us to serve in this critical position. We ask, Lord, for your continued blessing upon us as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God bless you and have a great week.